Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture, Chapter 10. Enslaved People and Slavery by Rob Tordoff. In 1972, archaeologists excavating the Agora in Athens discovered a sheet of lead at the bottom of an ancient well. A letter from an enslaved boy working in a foundry had been written on it, dating to the 4th century BCE. Lessus is writing to Xenocles and to his mother, Please do not stand by while he is dying in the bronze foundry, but go to his owners on his behalf and find something better for him. For the man that I have been handed over to is really harsh. I am being whipped to death. I have been tied up. I am being abused worse and worse. Lassus's letter to Xenocles illustrates all the most important characteristics of slavery and the most difficult problem with studying enslaved people in classical Greece. It is shocking demonstration of the power wielded by enslavers over those whom they claimed as property and the misery and powerlessness experienced by enslaved individuals. When read more closely, we shall see that the letter shows that slavery has broken Lassus' family apart and that his enslavers treat him, entirely legally, as a source of money, to be put out for hire with little or no concern for his well-being. The problem is that the letter is unique among classical Greek evidence. It is the closest we come to hearing any enslaved person speak and provides a different perspective to the texts and artifacts produced by and for the free members of society. Introduction Slaves are people whom others claim as property. The term appears in quotations to emphasize that slavery is an imposed condition and not an identity. People do not choose to be slaves, but are enslaved by others. Slavery appears in different forms, but its essential characteristic, as recognized by the 1926 League of Nations definition, is the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership are exercised. Over two millennia earlier, Aristotle had defined an enslaved person as someone who can belong to another. He viewed some individuals as natural slaves, but he also recognized that anyone could be enslaved. He argued what most ancient Greeks surely believed, that slavery was just part of life, an accepted and necessary occurrence in society. Certainly, the practice endured among Greeks for thousands of years. There were enslaved workers in Mycenaean Greece, documented, for instance, in clay tablets found at Pylos dating to the 13th century BCE, and there were still enslaved individuals in Greece in the Byzantine Middle Ages. This chapter focuses on the history of slavery in classical Greece especially in Athens, where the evidence is richest. It begins by examining the obstacles confronted by the historian of ancient Greek slavery. There follows a survey of the different kinds of lives that enslaved individuals led, and a discussion of the practices of those who bought, used, and tried to control individuals as property. The conclusion considers the socioeconomic functions of slavery and the significance of studying ancient Greek slavery today. Problems and Methodology Imagine the Acropolis in Athens. On its northern edge stands the temple known as the Erechtheum, with the famous porch of the maidens, the so-called Caryatids. Quite a lot is known about how the Erechtheum was built. This is because numerous fragments of epigraphic documents preserve the account of its construction, mostly from the years 409 to 405 BCE. By this phase of construction, the Caryatids were complete and the columns of the north and east porticos were in place. The accounts show there were 15 enslaved masons employed on the temple, among a group of masons numbering 44. We know some of the individual's names. One of them, for instance, was Carrion. He belonged to the citizen mason Leosis from the demi of Alopeque. The masons' tasks were to fashion the blocks for the walls and to carve fluting into the columns. The columns on the east side of the building stand over six meters tall. Each column of the east facade required the channeling of 24 flutes, 
which took at least three and a half months, possibly more, of painstaking labor. In the year 408-407 BCE, six gangs of men were at work carving the flutes. Probably more than half of that careful stonework was done by the hands of enslaved workers. One group of contractors consisted of seven men, a metic called Simeus, and probably six enslaved individuals, at least four of whom certainly belonged to Simeus. They carved the fluting of the fourth column from the left of the image. We cannot tell which sections of the fluting were carved by enslaved and which by free men. They worked side by side, and the polis paid enslaved masons employed by on the Rexium the same amount as freemen for the same work, though the money the enslaved artisans earned belonged to their enslavers. There would be no evidence of slavery here if we did not have inscriptions documenting the temple's construction. The accounts allow us to estimate quite precisely the extent to which the carving of the columns used in slave labor. But this is unusual in the historical record. Far more frequently, we do not know how much or how little such individuals contributed to any aspect of life in ancient Greece. Even in the cases in which we know they were there, it is extremely difficult to find genuine voices of enslaved people. This is because almost all our textual evidence from ancient Greece is the work of men from the social elite, men who had the time and money or the political authority to commit their worldviews to papyrus or stone. Indeed, many apparent cases of voices of enslaved men and women might actually be authored by elite men, with all the conscious or unconscious biases they are likely to have introduced. One example is the gravestone of a man named Mans, which probably dates to the 420s BCE. Mans' foreign name suggests that he was or had been enslaved. He was the best of the Phrygians in Athens, with its wide dancing places, Mans or Emanos. This gravestone is a fine memorial of him. By Zeus, I never saw a woodcutter better than myself. He died in the war. The shifts between the third and first person, between he and I, in the dedication are pointed. He was man's, and this gravestone is a memorial of him. Then we hear I, in man's, boast about his skill as a woodcutter. Finally, he died in probably the early years of the Peloponnesian War. We would like to know how. Who is speaking in each case? Is it Mans or is it someone else? It is possible that Mans commissioned the stone before his death, but it's more likely that someone else did this for him, and not just because death and war is often sudden and unpredictable. Gravestones are costly. How did Mans leave the money or instructions about what he wanted on the tombstone? Is the first person boast his voice, or is it his enslaver speaking on his behalf? Since we cannot be sure, we cannot confidently place this stone in the same category as Lisa's desperate letter. In summary, studying ancient Greek slavery is methodologically challenging because enslaved members of ancient society rarely leave traces in the historical record, except when free men happen to have documented them. This means that it is impossible to calculate with any great precision the economic and social importance of slavery in ancient Greece and it is difficult to construct an accurate description of what life as an enslaved person was really like. Defining Ancient Greek Slavery The historian Orlando Patterson sees three essential characteristics of the institution of slavery. Subjection to absolute power, natal alienation, and utter dishonor. Read in detail, Lesses' letter illustrates all three. Absolute power is confirmed by the potential limitlessness of the violence of those who claimed people as property. In the bronze foundry, Lassus is already being beaten and chained, and he fears that the situation is becoming worse. Those who held people in slavery had power over life and death. Article 16 of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights protects the family and the right to marry. Typically, enslaved people are denied the ability to maintain ties with family members, past and present, or to create a new family. Patterson calls this natal alienation. Lessis was probably born into slavery, unless he and his mother were captured and enslaved together. His mother's present status is unclear, as is that of the man with whom she seems to be living, except that Xenocles is not Lessis's father. We know this because in private letters in ancient Greece, fathers are always addressed as father. Reading the letter closely reveals that slavery has torn Lassus' family apart, 
there is nothing he or his mother can do about it. Enslaved individuals have no rights to assert any claim to justice, decent treatment, or respect. They are subject to utter social degradation, what Patterson terms dishonor. It is unlikely that Lassus will have been given any choice about being sent to work in the foundry, and he had no legal protection from the violence he suffered there. Evidently, he has some hope that his mother and Xenocles might persuade his enslaver to send him to work somewhere else, but the fact that he wrote this letter, or more likely found someone to write it for him at whatever unknown cost, shows that he is making his own appeal to his enslaver as futile. There were two main forms of unfree labor in ancient Greece. One was the enslavement of whole populations, or communal slavery, the best known example being the Spartan helots. The other form of slavery found in ancient Greece is chattel slavery. A chattel is a form of movable property, personality, as distinct from property and land, realty. Human chattel belonged to private individuals who bought and sold them at will. Chattel slavery is the most absolute form of slavery, and it was more common in ancient Greece than communal slavery. Most of the enslaved individuals in Athens were classified as chattel slaves. Sources of enslaved labor and the traffic in human beings. Helots in classical Sparta were born into slavery, whereas in Athens most of the enslaved were not. Wealthy Athenians might allow enslaved household members to procreate and raise the children in the household, but this involved years of feeding and clothing before the children could be worked or sold. And there were other problems. The mother would be temporarily unable to work, and the creation of a family forged a sense of community among enslaved individuals that enslavers aimed to avoid. The majority of those who held people in slavery preferred to purchase them at a market. On the Attic Stelae, only 3 out of 40 enslaved individuals are listed as born in the house. The same inscriptions also suggest that in Athens over 70% of the enslaved population were non-Greek. They came predominantly from the north and the east from Thrace and the Lower Danube, the Black Sea region, Anatolia, and Syria, with a minority imported from Sicily and Illyria. We have some idea where these individuals came from because one of the first things enslavers did with newly purchased individuals was give them a new name, a powerful expression of ownership and control. Many Greeks chose to give them ethnic names designating their place of origin. So we hear of many enslaved persons with names like Syros, for Syrian, or Phryx, for Phrygian. Traditionally, Greeks felt that it was wrong to enslave other Greeks, but it happened nonetheless. During the Peloponnesian War, it became standard practice to slaughter the men of a captured city and sell the women and children, as the Athenians did at Zion in 423 BCE. In the 4th century BCE, the traditional sentiment against enslaving other Greeks experienced a revival. The Spartan king Aegislaus is said to have proclaimed that troublesome Greek cities should be punished but not enslaved. However, the practice continued on occasion during the Roman conquest of Greece. In 335 BCE, for example, Alexander the Great enslaved the entire population of Thebes. Ancient Greeks seem to have seen the slave trade as a necessary evil. The occupation of slave trader was despised, but this hardly stopped people from buying and holding others as property. Despite general tolerance of slavery, excessive cruelty was condemned. Herodotus tells with evident moral satisfaction the story of how Panionos and his sons were punished for their cruelty. They were Chians who specialized in castrating handsome boys and selling them to Persians in Ephesus and Sardis. War undoubtedly provided the largest influx of enslaved people to the trade routes. Whether from Greek armies capturing cities or non-Greeks selling the war captives to Greek slave traders, slave traders would follow the conquering army with the money and transport, ready to buy war captives and sell them at markets. Xenophon tells how the governor of Byzantium sold 400 captive Persian soldiers into slavery. The supply of enslaved labor from war was unpredictable and irregular. Smaller, more dependable sources of supply also existed, but less is known about them. Archaeology shows a brisk trade in Greek wine on the north coast of the Black Sea, which probably explains the prominence of enslaved Scythians in Greece. Piracy and raiding were also common means of enslavement. 
Often, raiding was carried out alongside military campaigning. In general, historians believe that in the period of the Delian League and the Athenian Empire, piracy in the Aegean was effectively suppressed. Andesides tells us that the decline of the Athenian naval power toward the end of the Peloponnesian War led to an increase in piracy. It is impossible to quantify the contribution made by raiding and piracy to the slave trade in any period, but fear of capture and enslavement accompanied all Greeks traveling away from home. In a speech attributed to Demosthenes, we learn of the case of an Athenian called Nicostratos, who set off in pursuit of three fugitives from slavery and ended up himself being enslaved and sold on the island of Aegina. In classical Greece, Aegina was well known for its slave market. There were many others, the most famous being Delos in the Hellenistic period, where Strabo claims tens of thousands of people could be traded in a single day. As was the case in trading animals, sellers were required to reveal any hidden defects that a person might have before sale. In the laws, Plato recommended regulations to protect buyers, unless they be doctors or athletic trainers who were expected to conduct their own physical assessment. Plato suggested the law should allow the return of any purchased individual who turned out to suffer from the sacred disease, epilepsy, up to 12 months after the sale. Costs and Benefits Prospective buyers made their way to market and viewed the enslaved individuals for sale. They would be displayed publicly, sometimes naked, to allow for careful inspection, a degrading reminder that their bodies were not legally their own. Prices varied considerably. Xenophon explains that some individuals could be bought for less than 50 drachmas, while others cost over a thousand. The Attic Stele show a mean sale price among a group of 25 as 174 drachmas. But the individual prices show great variation. A goldsmith sold for 360 drachmas, twice the average price, while a child sold for 72 drachmas, well below half the average. Men and women in the sale fetch almost exactly the same mean price. The average price of 17 men is 179 drachmas, while that of 5 women is 178 drachmas. Buyers were prepared to pay more for youth, beyond childhood, strength, experience in skilled trades, and physical attractiveness. Younger enslaved individuals were valuable because they could be expected to live and therefore work for longer. Skilled workers were much more valuable than unskilled ones. Most of the blade makers in Demosthenes' father's factory were valued at 500 to 600 drachmas. Such skills could make enslavers a lot of money, as is seen in the case of Timarchus, who inherited a shoemaking business. Each worker brought Timarchus two obols a day, one obol was one-sixth of a silver drachma, twice Xenophon's estimated income from an enslaved worker in a mine. Xenophon implies that the basic cost of a miner who needed to be strong was 180 drachmas. Enslaved men are also found costing much less. Presumably, they were neither strong nor skilled. Very high sums were paid for sex laborers. The prostitute Nera, whose story is told below, was bought for 3,000 drachmas. But the highest price found in the ancient evidence is for a mining engineer, a man called Soses, for whom the politician and general Nicias paid 6,000 drachmas. It is extremely difficult to translate ancient prices into modern equivalents. Historians sometimes compare the average cost of an enslaved person in classical Athens, 180 drachmas, to the cost of us purchasing, without credit, a cheap new car. Skilled men, such as carpenters or masons, might earn a drachma for a day's work. If they worked 300 days in a year, such a purchase would consume more than half their annual income. Why did ancient Greeks use an enslaved labor force? First, pre-industrial societies required immense amounts of labor. In a world before fossil fuels with only rudimentary machine technology, most of the energy required in the economy flowed through human and animal muscle. Enslaved labor was simply the answer the ancient world had to the problem of energy. Second, endemic warfare, a normal state of affairs in ancient Greece, could meet the high demand for labor by maintaining a supply of human chattel and holding down prices. Third, as one historian has shown, enslaved labor in the ancient Greek world was relatively cheap compared to hired labor. In terms of local wheat equivalent, the cost of enslaved and hired labor expressed in terms of the value of an important foodstuff, hired labor in classical Athens 
was about three times as expensive as in slave labor, making the latter labor very economical. This economy was reinforced by the Greek ideological aversion toward working for others. Fourth, in many parts of the economy, slavery was profitable. A mason on the Arachtheum working with an enslaved assistant took home double the pay of a mason working alone. The cost of investing in an enslaved worker could be recouped fairly quickly. One historian has calculated the person who bought a worker for his workshop would make that money back in four to five years. No wonder then that in one passage in Xenophon, Socrates says that all Athenians who can afford it buy an assistant to work alongside them. Additionally, owning people as property was prestigious. Theophratus characterizes a man who tries too hard to impress as one who buys an Ethiopian. Finally, enslaved individuals relieved enslavers from the necessity of work and thus allowed them to spend time in other business and politics, where more wealth and prestige could be won. Under these conditions, where demand for labor is high and humans are available for sale, where wage labor is relatively expensive and despised by the free population, and where holding people in slavery is profitable, prestigious, and can free up time, slavery flourished. Enslaved Labor Aristotle tells us that there was an ancient Greek proverb, no leisure for slaves. Enslaved people led many different kinds of lives, but the common denominator was work. They appear in all manner of occupations, from mining, agriculture, and construction to manufacturing, commerce, domestic service, public service, sexual labor, and a variety of highly specialized jobs such as banking and medicine. One ancient Greek writer draws an elementary distinction between enslaved individuals who are in charge of an operation of some kind and those who are simply labor. There must have been far more enslaved laborers than enslaved managers, but because of the elite bias of our sources, we know a lot more about a minority of highly specialized workers, for example, enslaved bankers like Passion and Formian, who interacted with the elite than we do about the majority of enslaved laborers. But even among these workers who simply followed instructions, there were innumerable differences in status, skill, and occupation. Mining. In Laurium, in southern Attica, thousands of enslaved individuals were involved in mining silver ore. The district produced over 3.5 million kilograms of silver in antiquity. Some of the mine shafts reached depths of 100 meters below the surface, and the galleries extending from them ran up to several hundred meters. Silver ore had to be carried to the surface in leather sacks, pulverized in hand mills, washed and smelted before silver could be extracted. This required enormous amounts of labor, much of it provided by enslaved workers. What a man called Pantanitos bought a small mine for 10,500 drachmas, it included 30 enslaved miners. Their capital value was probably about half the value of the mine. There were much larger operations. Nicias is said to have leased 1,000 to mining businesses. The mines must have been very profitable for slaveholders, who might lease even a single worker to a mining contractor, probably much as Lessus was sent to the foundry. Archaeological excavations in the mining town of Thoricos have revealed something about the lives of enslaved workers in the mining region. Archaeologists uncovered a walled complex with facilities for crushing and washing ore. A number of small rooms may have been living quarters for the workers. The enclosing wall likely guarded the silver as well as preventing workers from fleeing. A pair of iron shackles found at the site attest to the brutal conditions under which these individuals worked. A little more is known about such workers in Lorium from burials and inscriptions. Excavations of over 200 graves in a large cemetery have revealed a poverty of grave gifts, perhaps reflecting burials of enslaved workers and far fewer sub-adult burials, only about 20% than is normal for an ancient society. The sub-adult burials show that the mining community was not wholly composed of adult men, Possibly, these are graves of child laborers forced to work in small, narrow galleries. Some gravestones survive. For example, one dating to around 360 BCE, unfortunately now lost, belonged to Skypos, whose name suggests he was Ethiopian. The stele showed Skyapus armed with a sword attacking an enemy, perhaps commemorating his life as a warrior before he was enslaved. 
There are also some inscribed dedications. One records the creation of an association and is dedicated to Heracles. To the divine Heracles, these members of the association set up this stone for good fortune. Cadus, Manes, Callias, Attis, Artemidorus, Mays, Socius, Sigorius, Hermes, Tibius, Hermos. Their names suggest these men were enslaved. For example, Caduceus, Manes, and Attis are Phrygian names. Mays and Tibius are Paphlagonian. In fact, the largest concentrations of names for enslaved individuals working in Larium are Phrygian and Paphlagonian, perhaps indicating silver mining expertise gained in Anatolia. The number of enslaved miners in Lorium has been much discussed by historians, as have the number of enslaved individuals for the whole of Attica. In the mines, we have a better idea than elsewhere of population numbers, but the evidence is still shaky. Thucydides says that after the Peloponnesians established a permanent encampment at Desileia in Attica, over 20,000 enslaved workers escaped to their camp. Although Thucydides does not state explicitly, it seems likely that significant numbers of these fleeing were from the mines because of other evidence that suggests the strategic aim of occupying Desilea was to damage Athens' mining operations, which was successful. In the first half of the 4th century, when the mines were underexploited, Xenophon proposed the Polis purchase 10,000 workers to encourage the resumption of mining, and he envisioned the expansion of activity far beyond this. On the basis of such figures and the evidence of mining leases from the 4th century, one historian has calculated that in about 340 BCE, there would have been about 35,000 enslaved workers in the mines. Another historian, drawing on modern mining experience, suggests that since the nature of the mines at Lorium allowed for a maximum annual extraction of 20,000 kilograms of silver, the 5th century BCE workforce would have numbered approximately 11,000. Agriculture. Above ground, there was a great demand for labor in agriculture, and enslaved laborers certainly provided a significant portion of it. Numerous enslaved people and inscriptions are recorded as farmer. Information on how enslaved workers were employed in agriculture is found in references to animal husbandry, vine dressing, pruning the vines to achieve the desired quantity and quality of grape production, wood cutting, charcoal burning, and harvesting. Due to the elite bias of our written sources, we know something about rich Athenian landowners, but very little about the lives of smallholders. Wealthy Athenians farming extensive land holdings like Phanipus certainly relied on enslaved labor. Before the 20th century, most of the population of any large society would of necessity be employed producing food. Unless Athens was highly unusual, most Athenians must have been farmers working small farms. If these farmers generally had enslaved workers, then most Athenians did. But the smaller the land holding, the less economical enslaved labor would become. To the point where a subsistence farmer, whose land yields just enough for his family, had probably neither the means nor the economic motive to purchase a worker. But some farmers may have acquired such an individual for their households more generally to carry out a variety of domestic tasks, like fetching water and firewood and who would help out with farming during peak seasons since all members of the household likely helped in planting and bringing in crops in less wealthy households. They may have also hired as an enslaved laborer as a temporary worker and not carry the cost of maintaining such worker all year round. Craft work and trade. Athens was probably unusual among Greek cities in having a relatively large proportion of its citizens employed as craftsmen and traders. Metics often worked in these kinds of employment since, as non-citizens, they were not allowed to own land. They were metic farmers, but they will have worked in citizens' fields. Xenophon describes the political assembly as filled with shoemakers, fullers, carpenters, market traders, blacksmiths, as well as farmers. Among these largely urban businessmen will have been Athenians like the mason Laosus. Some of them will have held people in slavery to help with their trade. For example, working on a column for the Erechtheum in the 8th Prytony of 408 or 407 BCE, Leosis was paid 20 drachmas for his work. If a man like Leosis could purchase an individual and train him in stone cutting to work by his side, he would make 40 drachmas in the same amount of time. 
The attractions of keeping enslaved workers to skilled craftsmen were obvious. Wealthy Athenians also profited from the enslavement of skilled laborers, but it is unlikely that they spent much time working alongside them. Trimarchus owned a shoemaking business, and it must have made him at least 1,150 drachmas a year, assuming 300 days' work. Demosthenes' father had a blade manufacturing business with over 30 enslaved workers, and a couch-making factory with 20. Together, the two businesses generated a net annual income of 4,200 drachmas. Less skilled laborers sold salt fish in the market, or transported goods on donkeys. Highly skilled ones like Midas made perfume or gold jewelry. In some cases, skilled workers had significant amounts of independence to carry on their businesses and make money for the ones they were enslaved to. Demosthenes described an enslaved merchant called Lampus who sailed between Athens and the Bosporus while his enslaver remained safely at home. Similarly, enslaved bailiffs on the farms of wealthy men would supervise other enslaved agricultural workers while their enslavers spent time or even lived in the city. Despite their enslavement, these individuals worked independently and were sometimes allowed to establish families and live separately from their enslavers. Lampus was one of these so-called chorus oikuntis, enslaved laborers dwelling separately. He had his own home and a wife and children. Midas, too, was likely one of the chorus oikuntis. He also had a family, and his sons worked with him at the perfumery. The enslaved banker, Passion, was so successful that he bought his freedom and gained Athenian citizenship. His family became one of the Athenian elite. Domestic service. In less wealthy households, enslaved individuals would probably carry out domestic work as well as in the business or on the farm. Shops and workshops in ancient Greece were often part of the house, rather than being located on separate premises, which contributed to the integration of commercial work or craft work with domestic service. But the wealthy might have them purely for domestic work. This is where many enslaved females would have been employed. Their usual tasks included fetching water, shopping at the market, weaving, helping at harvest time, and nursing children. Enslaved males doing purely domestic work were probably seen as something of a luxury. One writer suggests that on big farms, an old or otherwise useless mill worker could be tasked with watching the door. For the rich wife, an attendant was considered a necessity. She might also have a wet nurse to feed and care for her babies and infants, and a tutor for sons as they grew older. Enslaved nurses and tutors were highly trusted and could be treated with great affection while simultaneously exploited and restricted in their movements. One law court speech describes a nurse who returned to live with her former enslavers after her husband died, despite having obtained her freedom. A mid-4th century BCE marble gravestone found in Piraeus commemorates a nurse with a relief sculpture and an epigram. Here the earth holds the nurse of Diogetes' children. She came from the Peloponnese and was most dutiful. Malika from Kithera. Malika's name is Phoenician. How she came to Kythera and then to Athens, we will never know, but the likely expense of such a gravestone suggests how fondly Diogetes and his children remembered her. We cannot know how Malika herself remembered the experience, but her close contact with the family reminds us that many enslaved individuals performed emotional labor that required them to obscure their exploitation for their enslavers while performing the physical tasks required of their roles. The sex trade. There was a large sex trade in Athens, and most sex laborers were probably enslaved at some point in their lives. The trade was practiced in different ways. Some walked the streets looking for business. Others waited for clients to visit them in brothels. The basic word for a sex laborer of this kind was pornos or porne, which is the base of the English word pornography. But there were many others each with its different implications for the kind of sexual contract they and their clients would make. Aulus girls, sometimes translated as flute girls, so-called because of the musical instruments they played, were hired to entertain at drinking parties, symposia, and festivals. They might also be available for sex as proceedings became more drunken and riotous. Others known as hetarai, companions, might have made large amounts of money and lived more or less independently. 
a young man before marriage or an older man who had perhaps been married and already had grown children might purchase a woman and live with her as he would a wife. A woman in this kind of sex slavery was called a concubine, a paleki. The story of Niera found in 4th century law court speech illustrates various aspects of sex slavery. As a girl, Niera was bought and trained by a freed woman called Nicarete. Nicarete prostituted Niera and six other girls while they were very young, selling them when they grew older. Two men bought Niera and shared her as a personal sexual companion until they decided to marry. They offered her the chance to buy her freedom, and she was able to find the money by calling up her network of past clients. Once freed, Niera continued to work as a sex laborer, addicted to the lavish lifestyle, according to the speaker, but likely because she had no other form of income. Despite her freedom, she remained dependent on male lovers. She first lived with an Athenian citizen, Phrynion, but left him in Athens because of his abusive treatment of her. She eventually returned to Athens with the Athenian Stephanos, who protected her from retaliation by Phrynion, and lived with him for many years as his companion. The household included children, who may or may not have been born to Nera. In the current trial, she is accused of masquerading as a citizen wife with legitimate children. If found guilty, she would again be sold into slavery, now in her 50s. Nera's narrative illustrates the social mobility of a minority of enslaved sex laborers, but also their continued volatility and vulnerability in a society as one previously enslaved. Not all sex laborers were women. Phaedo, a friend of Socrates, was originally an elite from Elis. He was captured in war and sold into sex slavery in Athens. Male prostitutes seem to have practiced the trade by waiting for clients in small cubicles built along the street, or by working on the streets, taking clients to ruined buildings and graveyards. Phaedo was lucky enough to be bought out of slavery. What happened to men in the sex trade once they became too old to be active, we do not know. Possibly, they may have become sex traffickers, as seems to have been the case with former female sex laborers like Alke, who spent her latter years managing a building with a brothel, subjecting younger women and girls to the life she had led. Slavery in the City Most enslaved individuals in Athens were privately owned, but some, commonly referred to by scholars as public slaves, were owned by the polis. The most noticeable were the Scythian archers. 300 Scythians had been bought after the Persian Wars. They act as a kind of police force, keeping public order, most visibly in the assembly. They were also found in the courts and the jails as guards and the public executioner, and they assisted the eleven, the magistrates responsible for the arrest of citizens. Using an enslaved workforce in these situations circumvented the legal problem of citizens arresting and manhandling other citizens. Other enslaved individuals were secretaries and accountants, employed, for example, in the Bouleuterion, the archives, and the mint. The secretary in the Bouleuterion kept records of public contracts, confiscated property, and rents from the public lands. In Piraeus, an enslaved worker kept maintenance records for Athens' triremes. By 375-374 BCE, there was a coin tester in Piraeus in addition to the one in the city, and these enslaved officials were responsible for verifying the authenticity of coinage used in the Agora. Enslaved workers like these were highly literate and numerate. Their permanent employment allowed them to build up professional experience. This was important because the democracy appointed many citizens to public office by random selection. This helped promote political equality, but prevented citizens from building up relevant professional competencies in any particular area. A bureaucracy of enslaved officials, therefore, assisted citizens in office and provided the requisite experience. Some of these officials became important and relatively wealthy. It is not clear what Pitalakis's office was, but he was able to bring forward prosecutions in court, lived in a private residence, and had enough money for gambling and prostitutes, despite his status as enslaved. We even know of such officials keeping enslaved people themselves. An inscription shows one such individual, whose name is lost, owned a woman called Cratia. The city of Athens also kept enslaved laborers. We do not know how many but the nature of their tasks suggests their numbers may have been substantial. For example, this labor force built and repaired roads and cleaned the streets, including the unenviable task of removing abandoned corpses. 
important temples and cult sites were maintained by them as well. At Eleusis, there was a gang of 17 enslaved workers overseen by an enslaved foreman. The Practice and Ideology of Slaveholding Athenian law reveals profound anxiety about maintaining social distance and distinction between enslaved and free men. It forbade slaves to exercise in palestrae, for example, or to establish sexual relationships with freeborn boys. The more closely enslaved people resembled freeborns, the more difficult it was to explain or justify the existence of slavery. The situation in ancient Greece was very different from that under Atlantic slavery, for Greek slavery was not based on somatic distinctions between different racial groups. Indeed, as noted above, some enslaved individuals in ancient Greece were themselves Greeks. Aristotle appreciated the difficulty of the problem. In politics, he admits that enslaved people frequently have bodies like those of free men. However, he insists the difference lies in the soul. Aristotle argued for natural slavery, claiming that some humans possess souls that are deficient in rationality to the extent that they are not fit for freedom. It is therefore better for such people to belong to someone else who will be able to reason on their behalf and make their lives useful. In this way, Aristotle argued slavery is beneficial for the enslaved as well as the enslaver. It frees the enslaver from the drudgery of physical labor for higher pursuits like philosophy or politics, and it protects enslaved people from their own irrationality. Aristotle describes the natural slave as a human being who is deficient in reason and therefore needs to be controlled, much as animals do. Aristotle's attempt to construct a defense of the idea of the natural slave shows just how important it was to enslavers to be able to believe that slavery was both justified and necessary. It was clear to enslavers that many enslaved individuals resented and hated them. One law court speaker declares that all enslaved people do so by nature. Antiphon reports a case in which a boy younger than 12 tried to murder his enslaver. In the Republic, Plato imagines what would happen if a family with 50 enslaved members found their household suddenly carried away by a god and left in the wilderness. Now it is the enslaver's turn to beg his slaves to be merciful to him, his wife, and children. Enslavers depended on the support of other enslavers and their institutions to protect them and support their ownership and treatment of enslaved people. Enslaved workers did self-emancipate, sometimes in large numbers, as mentioned above in the case of the fugitives from the mines during the Peloponnesian War. Yet, in the classical period, the only polis known to have experienced a rebellion was Sparta in the 3rd century BCE. In the 460s BCE, helots and free non-Spartiates rebelled and occupied Mount Ithomi, where they held out for years until the Spartans allowed them to emigrate under a truce. As the passage from the Republic shows, there was fear on both sides of the relationship, and many enslavers must have been determined to keep their enslaved household members more fearful than themselves. There were no automatic legal consequences if an enslaver killed a slave, he would have to be prosecuted by another citizen, and unless an enemy took the opportunity for revenge, it was unlikely that anyone would be motivated to open the case. Enslaved people in Athens had almost no protection under the law. A passage in Plato's Gorgias states that an enslaved person is better off dead than alive because he has no means of defending or avenging himself or anyone he cares about if someone does him harm. If maltreated, they could take sanctuary at the Temple of Theseus, where they could offer themselves for sale to any free man who would buy them. But they would have to find a way to escape first, and there was no guarantee that a new situation would be any better. In a trial, since it was assumed that enslaved individuals would say what their enslavers wanted them to say or otherwise lie, their evidence was only admissible if extracted under torture. Although the authority and power of those who claimed others as property in ancient Greece was theoretically absolute, it was thought best to temper it with favorable treatment. As one writer put it, enslavers had to give enslaved workers the right measure of three things, work, punishment, and food. The instrument of punishment most closely associated with slavery was the whip. Violent punishment commanded obedience and taught fear, as Lysis' letter shows. But enslavers had to be careful not to go too far. In Aristophanes' Clouds, a character complains that because of the war, he could no longer beat his slaves because they would flee. 
a number of passages in Aristophanes makes jokes about the violent treatment of enslaved workers and about comic dramatists who make these jokes. Extra or better food was thought an important inducement to good service, since, as one writer put it, food was pay. Xenophon's Ischemachus says that he provides those who work well with better clothes and shoes. Conversely, depriving them of basic necessities could be a form of punishment. As previously mentioned, some slaveholders might allow trusted workers to live separately and have a family. Such arrangements might actually increase their control because the threat of breaking up the family by selling its members elsewhere was a powerful source of coercion. Perhaps the greatest source of encouragement to cooperation, however, was the hope of being freed in return for good service. Aristotle recommended that all enslavers should allow the hope of eventual freedom to those they held in slavery. The different legal processes by which individuals were manumitted, set free, in classical Athens are not fully understood. Witnesses to the act of manumission were certainly required, and we hear of those who ostentatiously freed slaves in front of the audience in the theater of Dionysus at the annual city of Dionysia. Once freed, in Athens, they became metics and could finally have families freely, if of childbearing age, and earn their own income. Many, many have continued a relationship with their previous enslaver, who likely served as their protector, a requirement of all metics at Athens. At Delphi, inscriptions from the Hellenistic period indicate individuals manumitted with conditions which in some cases did not expire until the death of their former enslaver or required regular payments to him or her. It is uncertain if conditions of manumission were a common practice in classical Athens. Manumission itself appears to have been a rare practice in this polis. Representing Enslaved People Less's letter and a few tombstones and other inscriptions are the only evidence we have from enslaved individuals in their own words. Classical Greek literature is extraordinarily rich and there are many enslaved characters in it, in tragedy, comedy, historiography, and rhetoric. But the evidence of literature reflects the worldview and the interests of elite authors, who were the enslavers. A good example of the problem is the characterization of enslaved individuals in the Odyssey. As one critic has shown, enslaved characters in the poem fall into two essential categories, good and bad. The bad ones are arrogant, unruly, and unjustifiably disloyal to their household, like Melanthios, the goat herd, while good ones are touchingly loyal and affectionate toward their master, like the swine herd, Eumaeus, or the nurse, Eurycleia. The Odyssey's binary characterization of enslaved persons into stereotypes works to reinforce the ideology of enslavers. The behavior of bad slaves shows that resistance to slavery is wrong and deserves harsh punishment, while the faithfulness of good slaves idealizes slavery as a harmonious symbiosis of kindly enslavers and loyal servants. It would be a mistake to conclude that literary representations are of no use for understanding slavery. Stereotypical characterizations of enslaved individuals tell us what those who claim them as property hope for from them, but probably rarely found. The Life of Aesop is a rich text and examples of less than ideal, but very entertaining interactions between an enslaver and the one he is enslaved. The work is a fictional biography of the fabulist Aesop, who was supposed to have lived in the 6th century BCE. His famous fables may have originated among enslaved populations who used stories to communicate among themselves in a way their enslavers could not comprehend. The biography as we have it derives from Roman Egypt of the first century in the present era, but its content probably reflects general conditions of slavery all over the ancient Mediterranean world in every period. Aesop is described as ugly and misshapen, but he is gifted with an exceptionally sharp mind and a tongue to match. Sold on Samos to a philosopher called Xanthus, Aesop proceeds to outwit him at every turn, creating bitter and petty conflict between Xanthus, his wife, and his students. For example, Xanthus dines with friends one day and sends Aesop home with some delicacies from the meal for she who loves me. Aesop goes home, tells the wife of his errand, and gives the food to the dog. When Xanthus returns, she vents her fury by leaving him and returning to live with her parents. Aesop patiently explains to Xanthus that his wife's actions have proved that the dog is indeed the only one who loves him. 
In another anecdote, Xanthus refuses to manumit Aesop, despite receiving valuable help from him, and so Aesop seduces his wife. Later, he saves Xanthus from suicide and eventually tricks him into freeing him. Aesop's story reveals a lot about what enslavers must have feared those they enslaved might do and about the concealed feelings of resentment and anger that enslaved individuals must have harbored toward their oppressors. It lifts the curtain on the comforting vision of that the good enslaver will ultimately be able to enjoy the loyalty and affection of those he enslaves. It also recognizes agency for enslaved individuals. Aesop's cunning is meant to be amusing, but reminds us that while enslaved, individuals could not openly resist without dire consequences. They might defy and subvert their enslaver's will by feigning illness, working slowly, being deliberately careless in a task, siphoning goods for personal consumption or profit, wandering one out in the community on an errand, or even damaging property. Enslaved individuals could also talk and spread rumors to damage the reputation of the household and its free members. But they also chose courses of action aiming for a betterment of their circumstances, including even freedom. Summary. This chapter began with an enslaved boy's desperate plea for protection against imprisonment and violent abuse, and ended with a fictional account of the moral and intellectual triumph of an enslaved individual over his enslaver. The stories of Lessis and Aesop illustrate the violence and irrationalism required to sustain slavery, both practically and ideologically. By looking at the lives and labor of these individuals in ancient Greece, we have seen ample evidence of the other major factor in the survival of slavery, its economic success. We have found that while quantitative study of ancient Greek slavery is extremely difficult, a qualitative description can be achieved. It is a complex picture with enslaved workers of widely different backgrounds leading vastly different lives, depending on the economic activity forcibly undertaken. Many were worked to death, while a few were in their freedom and even became wealthy and powerful. The obstacles faced in any quantitative study demonstrate how carefully one must look to find traces of enslaved people and how it may sometimes help to use literature or comparative history. We have also seen how easy it is for us to be unaware, as ancient Greek enslavers surely were, of the enormous contribution of enslaved workers to all aspects of ancient Greek life. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.